Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's a new Julie Otsuka novel, So We Can Live Again. Those are the words of Colson Whitehead, but the sentiments of readers everywhere. Once per decade, we are graced with a new book by Julie. In 2003... It was When the Emperor Was Divine, in 2012, The Buddha in the Attic, and now The Swimmers, a powerful, spare, elegant, and shattering novel of a daughter's love for her mother and the devastation she feels watching her decline. Julie Otsuka is the winner of the Penn Faulkner Award, the Asian American Literacy Award, a finalist for the National Book Award, and she's my guest on this episode of The Literary Life. Julie, welcome. Welcome to Literary Life. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It's a pleasure to be here. I loved your book. The writing was so beautiful, it was so elegant, it was so spare, and yet it packed such a big punch. By the end, I was completely gutted by it. Many of the things that the the character in the book is going through are things that I've been going through with my own mother, actually, right now. So why don't you talk a little bit about The Swimmers and where it came from and why now? I think it's probably the most personal book that I've written to date. Um, and it came out of years of watching my own mother's very slow decline um, from Pick's disease, which is a form of dementia. Um, and also, I... You know, I was a recreational swimmer for years and I was always fascinated by that world. Um, and nobody had really written about it fictionally. Um, and um, I had sketched out just a few scenes many, many years ago uh, before, I think probably somewhere in the middle of writing Buddha in the Attic. Um, so this is a long time ago. And when I finished writing the Buddha in the Attic, I went back to those scenes and um, I picked them up and I looked at, at them again. And um, I just knew that I wanted to write more about that world because it was just, I also wanted to do something I think very different from my first two novels, um, something that was set in the present. And um, that was something that was also maybe just a little closer to, to me and my own experience uh, as a daughter. Um, so, um, so that's, so, so the book, I guess for me came from a very, very personal, personal place. I mean, I did do some research after the fact, but the seed of the novel was really just my own life. Well, it was so beautiful the way you set, you you did the segue from the swimming part of it into where you introduce your mother, the character of your mother, uh, 
as being one of the swimmers. And then the way you segue it into a story about a mother and a daughter and a sense of loss. Talk about that first part of it, the part of it that's the crack. Oh, that was that was actually a very, very fun chapter to write. Um, the crack is, I mean, it's literally a crack that appears at the bottom of the pool and it, it could be a metaphor really for whatever the reader wants it to be. Um, but, you know, I, I like to see it also as somehow hinting at a crack in Alice's own mind. Um, but it's just the introduction of something foreign and, and unexpected in the swimmers' lives. And um, I think the uncertainty of not knowing what it is and, and what will ultimately happen makes the swimmers um, slightly neurotic and crazy. Um, and so I, I, I didn't know when I began it where it would go or if I would ever you know, find the ultimate scientific reason for its existence. Um, and in a way, it doesn't really matter if I do or not, but it's, it's just, it's a rupture, it's a disruption. And it was, for me, a metaphor of kind of what we've all been through. Right, I mean, it's, it's really the end of Eden for them. I mean, this, the swimming pool was really, it was an underground haven. It was just a place that they could go to escape all of their troubles above ground on land. The idea of an indolent crack. You know, I mean, I've heard of indolent cancer, and but an indolent crack, a crack that you just don't know whether it's going to continue or not, or when you can live with forever. You know, it was really, really so evocative, I thought. I mean, it's very much, I think, how we feel about you know, the pandemic, um, just not knowing if it's going to be with us for the rest of our lives or if it will be over soon. Um, but I, I did start writing this years before the beginning um, of the pandemic, but um, it is really about just uncertainty. And the pool is such hedonic place, you know, it's really very much about the body and just the sensation of being in the water and, the, and just the physical pleasure that one takes in being submerged. Um, so I think it is a place where people can actually experience pleasure and joy. Can you explain that a little bit about that space that you're in when you are swimming? Yeah, I mean, I, like you, grew up um, very close to the beach. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I went to the beach a lot in the summer, you know. So I, I grew up learning how to swim in the ocean. And I was not a lap swimmer when I was younger. I would just swim in the water, um, in, 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 you know, in the ocean um, water. But um, when I was in my mid thirties, I started lap swimming at a local pool and uh, it was a completely different experience of being in the water. I mean, it's, it's so controlled. It's the same every day. Um, you know, there are rigid lines between which you swim and you see often the same people at the same hours. And um, there was something very just freeing just about being literally you know, in the moment. You really can't think about anything except for continuing to breathe, not drowning, um, not bumping into the person ahead of you, um, not getting hit by the person, you know, to your left or right. Um, and so you're really just focused on your body. And ideally you can get into that state of flow where you're just, you know, in the act of doing, just putting one arm in front of the other and kicking and moving. Um, and that's really all you have to think about. And, you know, I love all of the rules, the rules of the lane, things that those of us who don't do lap swimming never really think about. 
but it does become a culture in and of itself. And it's a culture, it seems to me, in which, you know, you're describing people from all different walks of life who find themselves in the pool. And the pool is a kind of democratizing space for everyone in one way or another. Yeah, I wanted, I mean, I, I deliberately, I mean, my first two books are so much very blatantly about race. And I wanted not to refer to the race of any of the swimmers. Um, you don't know, you know, you don't really know what color their skin is. Um, you might have a hint from some of their names um, as to what their race or ethnicity might be. But I love that, you know, and, and also just in terms of class, you might not know who somebody is above ground. They could be an astrophysicist. They could be, you know, a, a mailman. They could, you know, you, you just don't know who they are. And, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, all that matters is if somebody is a, you know, in the fast lane, the medium lane, or the slow lane. Um, so, and yet, you know, historically, swimming pools are very undemocratic spaces in terms of, you know, who could, who was allowed to swim and who was not. Um, um, and even now, I think access to pools is, it's, I mean, those who have access to a large pool aren't always, are, are, are those who usually can afford, you know, to either pay for it, to be a member of a pool or a gym. Um, but, um, but in my, in the pool of my dreams and the pool on the page, it was a pool that was open to all. Um, so I, I didn't want it to be a very democratic space. I, we won't do a spoiler. We won't give a spoiler, but it was indeed heartbreaking at the end when, when people who thought this pool would last forever and this would be a way that they would continue forever. It doesn't necessarily come to pass. And then we move into the second section, which is the the DM Perdidi. Um, and I, I know that that existed in and of itself at one point, right, as a story. Am I right about that? You are correct. Um, yes, I wrote that. I was finishing up the last chapter of The Buddha in the Attic, and I just took off a couple months um, to write Selected Swords um, at Symphony Space wanted something new. And so I'd had this idea for this story for a long time. And so I thought, I'm just going to sit down and do it. So I took off a couple months to write it. And um, it was almost an ecstatic experience. I felt very connected to my mother. And um, you know, I just was had she a be, Was she hmm? beginning to exhibit signs of her dementia at that point? Uh, much earlier, actually. I mean, she... I remember the first reading that I did after um, my first novel was published, the first public reading that I gave um, close to my parents' house. I remember seeing her in the audience and it was the first time that I realized that she, she was not able to make eye contact with me. She was just looking a little bit off to the side. So I, I knew that something was off. And um, so no, so she, she had exhibited, exhibited symptoms just years, years before that. Um, but, I, you know, I had this strange structure with DM Perditi where every sentence begins with either she remembers or she does not remember. And that I'm very process oriented. So just those phrases allowed me to access a lot of things that I think had been in the back of my brain for years. Um, and then I guess what I had to do was find out just the, the right way to arrange those sentences in these kind of clusters um, that would eventually become paragraphs. Um, but it was a very inchoate thing <laughs> in the beginning. Um, and it took me a, a while to put things into some sort of narrative order. 
Um, but I actually, I think I finished writing that. That was actually after I'd sketched out those pool scenes, but Diem Perditi was a complete story in and of itself. Did you know you were going to put your, you know, did you know you were going to put Alice into the pool at that point? That's a good question. Initially, no. Um, I, I had a character who was, you know, slightly demented, but um, I, I didn't know um, that she would end up becoming Alice. So that was a thought that I had later. And then that was really my aha moment. I, I, I knew how to, you know, connect these two different worlds. Right. Structurally, it's just perfect. It just, it makes the perfect segue, I think. Oh, I'm so glad it works. I mean, I would like to, I would like for the reader, maybe not to notice initially that this is going to be Alice's story. How did it feel to be writing something so personal? It actually felt great. Um, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I also, I mean, I, I had, when I first began to write, I thought of myself as more of a humorist um, and, when I began writing the When the Emperor Was Divine, that first chapter was just a short story initially, um, just a one-off. And, and I never really thought of myself as, you know, a serious writer of historical fiction um, until then. And I, was in, I was at Columbia when I wrote that first chapter and my advisor really urged me to continue writing about this family. But and I always think that there's a little bit of humor in everything that I write, but it was it was almost like coming home to be able to 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 exercise that humor muscle a little bit more. And and in the swimmers, it was actually just a lot of fun. Um, and well, I didn't have to do you know half as much research as I did for my first two novels, especially the Buddha in the attic. And I I I really did a lot of research for that book. Um, but uh, but I, I also was a little bit wary of turning the lens on myself in fictional form. You know, I didn't know what that would feel like. I still haven't been able to write about my own experience fictionally in the first person, you know? So the closest I've gotten so far is using the you voice. Um, but um, I think, you know, I'm working on something new. It's a little bit too early to say what it is, but I, I feel like, you know, I, I'll continue to use that you voice and kind of turn the, flip the camera on myself um, as, as a, fictional subject um, and just also I, I like to do something new with each book so um, but the swimmers it was um, it was I, you know you'd think that it would be just a, a little easier um, and yet it took me actually longer to write than my first two novels I, I don't know why um, but I am you know a very slow writer and, and it takes me a while to get things it takes me a lot of time to get things right there's a lot of rewriting involved um, but it was also just kind of wonderful to be writing in the present moment and just, you know, allowing my feelings about what was going on currently to somehow inflect the story. I mean, I, I wrote, the, I wrote all the chapters of the swimmers in my neighborhood cafe. And then when the pandemic started, I wrote at home for the first time. So I, I wrote the very last chapter just at home. Um, so that was a very different writing experience, but um, it was very much, I think, influenced by just present events and what was going on now. Over how long of a period um, did your mom suffer with dementia? Um, probably at least 20 and maybe even longer. Oh. Um, 
it's yeah, it's a very it's this form of dementia often has an early onset in the 50s or 60s. So I think some of her um, personality oddities actually might have been more manifestation and early manifestation of her disease rather than you know just her herself. <laughs> um, um, so so it's hard to tell actually. It's hard to pinpoint the, the very beginning, but um, um, but yeah, but it, it took many many years um, for her. I mean, it, the first few years she was, you know, still recognizably herself. Uh, and, and I don't mean physically, but I just mean, you know, psychologically, emotionally, she was still the mother that, that, that I knew. There were so many things that I recognized in my own mother and what, in my own relationship with what she's going through. Um, it rang so very true in so many ways. Um, even to the point of, you know, my mother who never, I mean, my other, my mother always loved nature in one way or another, but we moved, she moved into a, into a, a condo that has this big broad balcony overlooking these trees. And at one point you talk about, you know, your mother develops a sudden and inexplicable love of trees. And I remember, you know, my, I would go see my mom and all of a sudden she would go, oh, aren't the trees beautiful? And I would go, Mom, you've never talked like that before. <laughs> aren't the, isn't that tree just gorgeous? It was so interesting. I, I think as humans, we're hardwired to really love greenery. You know, I think, you know, if you walk, take a walk in the forest, which I haven't done for years, <laughs> but your blood pressure just drops, you know, something happens to our brain. Um, I think that's, you know, probably initially where we spent, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of years, either there or in the, on the savannah. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an environment that we know something about, um, maybe not personally, but just historically as a species. Well, I thank you for that. And I thank you for the honesty. And I thank you for the empathy that's in this book. Would you read a little something from the swimmers? Sure. Um, I think I'll read from the, the very, very beginning. The under the pool is located deep underground in a large cavernous chamber many feet beneath the streets of our town. Some of us come here because we are injured and need to heal. We suffer from bad backs, fallen arches, shattered dreams, broken hearts, anxiety, melancholia, anhedonia, the usual above ground afflictions. Others of us are employed at the college nearby and prefer to take our lunch breaks down below in the waters, far away from the harsh glares of our colleagues and screens. Some of us come here to escape, if only for an hour, our disappointing marriages on land. Many of us live in the neighborhood and simply love to swim. One of us, Alice, a retired lab technician now in the early stages of dementia comes here because she always has. And even though she may not remember the combination to her locker or where she put her towel, the moment she slips into the water, she knows what to do. Her stroke is long and fluid. Her kick is strong, her mind clear. Up there, she says, I'm just another little old lady, but down here at the pool, I'm myself. Most days at the pool, we are able to leave our troubles on land behind. Failed painters become elegant breaststrokers. 
untenured professors slice shark-like through the water with breathtaking speed. The newly divorced HR manager grabs a faded red styrofoam board and kicks with impunity. The downsized ad man floats otter-like on his back as he stares up at the clouds on the painted pale blue ceiling, thinking for the first time all day long of nothing, let it go. Warriors stop worrying, bereaved widows cease to grieve. Out-of-work actors, unable to get traction above ground, glide effortlessly down the fast lane in their element. At last, I've arrived. And for a brief interlude, we are at home in the world. Bad moods lift, ticks disappear, memories reawaken, migraines dissolved, and slowly, slowly, the chatter in our minds begins to subside as stroke after stroke, length after length, we swim. And when we are finished with our laps, we hoist ourselves up out of the pool, dripping and refreshed, our equilibrium restored, ready to face another day on land. Thank you for that. Your journey to writing um, went through a number of different stages. So you started out as a painter, right? If I'm not mistaken. Actually, before I began painting, I, I did um, figurative sculpture. So that was, um, I was at Yale and I, I'd never really taken a serious art class before. And um, I remember I took my first drawing class and it wasn't something that I was really aware of being able to do, but um, I was able to draw much to my surprise. I mean, I, you know, as a, as a kid, I would kind of sketch, you know, I don't know, Charlie Brown cartoons, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, it's not a skill that I, you know, I developed I really thought a lot about, but, um, and then I, I took my first uh, figurative sculpture class uh, with a, a professor named Erwin Hauer who died um, not so long ago, just a few years ago. And um, I remember the first thing that we learned how to sculpt was not the bust of a head, but it was a, it was a cow femur bone, which mm -hmm. is a completely abstract object that you have no preconceived idea of, whereas a head, you know, it's two eyes and nose, a smile, you know, but this bone, it was, um, it was the most beautiful thing. And it was a very complex object that has, you know, just has twists and turns, you know, that move through space. And, you know, you just, you look at it, you rotate it, you look at it again, you rotate it. And it's, it was really how I learned to see uh, in a very um, abstract way. And um, I think that's somehow informed my artistic vision or just my approach to the world. Um, and so I, you know, you know, after that we graduated to doing a, you know, sculpture of a, of a head and then to a full figure. And um, I was actually very good at that. Um, and then I took a painting class and I just fell in love with the medium of paint, just oils or oil paints are just amazing. Just that the color, there's just really nothing like it. Um, and so I, I began to paint and, or try to learn to paint. And I actually began a graduate program in painting um, in Bloomington, Indiana, but I dropped out after about three months. Um, I was just unable to perform under the pressure of having to produce work for my first critique. Um, I think I just wasn't ready psychologically um, for being in graduate school at that point. Um, so then I, I quit, I dropped out and I moved to New York City and I just started temping. And um, after a few months, I really had just was longing to paint again. So I enrolled um, at the New York Studio School, which is in the old Whitney Museum uh, down on 8th Street. And uh, I stayed there for a couple of years and 
again, I hit this wall where I just became very self-conscious and was just unable to put down a mark on the canvas without just being sure that it was wrong. And um, so I, I eventually just, I, I just was not functioning well and I just had to stop. So after that, I, I really, I was very depressed. I felt like I really failed at the one thing I, you know, I wanted to do for a long time, which was to paint. Um, and I just, I was working evenings as a word processor for a construction management company. So I had these days to fill, um, days that I'd spent previously in art school. So I began going to my neighborhood cafe and just, I just began reading a lot of contemporary fiction for the first time, just as a form of solace, just as a way to take my mind off myself. You know, it was just wonderful to get lost in somebody else's story. So I, you know, I would go to the Strand bookstore and I would just, you know, I would look at the shelves for hours and, and I didn't really know anything about the lay of the land in terms of contemporary fiction, but I found that I really love writing or reading short stories. So I remember I, you know, I discovered Lydia Davis, her, when her, it was an early collection called Break It Down and I had no idea who she was. And I just, I love, I just loved her short, short, short stories. You know, they were really, they were so deceptively simple and very psychological psychological and they had this sort of linear Cartesian logic, you know, that just really appealed to my brain. Um, and so I just kind of, you know, I, I would just buy books and, you know, discover who these people were. And um, it was all done really in the spirit of just kind of play. I mean, I was just reading because I like to read. I, I, I wasn't reading with an eye towards maybe one day becoming a writer. Um, who were some of the other writers beyond Lydia that you were reading? if you remember um you know i was reading a lot of the 70s 80s minimalists so amy hempel um Ooh. rick bass um did you read ray carver as well oh yes 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 oh. um yeah and richard ford some of his early stories um oh. i just loved um so it was very much coming out of that sort of hemingway minimalist sensibility um i also read cheever for the first time I am those short stories, that little red book, that paperback, you know, um, and um, it was just this wonderful world to to dive into, and um, you know, I was, you know, I was very happy when I was reading, um, and then. And when did the, when did you make the leap into putting pen to paper? Um, well, I had a boyfriend at the time that I met in the cafe, and I would just I would just sketch out these little scenes about him and just show it to him, just to make him laugh, you know, it was just kind of a form of entertainment really for myself and maybe for him, maybe not, I don't know. But um, so that's when I started exercising that writing muscle and I could always, you know, I could always write. It's not something that I really thought twice about, you know, I could write papers in college. It wasn't something that was as difficult for me, I think as painting. I think painting was a, it was just a, a more difficult medium for me than words. And there was this gap with painting between the pictures that I could see in my head that I wanted to make and what I actually was able to make with the skills that I had. And I didn't know if I could you know, overcome that gap um, and become the painter I wanted to be. Whereas with writing, for some reason, there's not, there's not that divide between what I want to do and what I can do. I just feel like if I work hard enough, I can, I can get to that place where I'm writing, you know, where, where the writing finally takes shape and is exactly what I want it to be. So I just feel a little bit more at ease with language. And I also, just that critical editorial eye for some reason is not activated when I'm writing. Um, because I, I mean, with painting too, I would expect things to be a mess in the beginning. Um, and with writing as well, you know, it's just every, you know, when I sketch out a scene, it's just, 
you know, it's kind of inchoate at first and it takes me a while to bring up the details and to focus, but, um, but, and one thing with painting is I, I would often sketch out initially these just kind of gorgeous, you know, kind of sketches initially and, and on the canvas. And then I would lose that initial, you know, whatever I sketched out, I paint over it. I would lose that initial sketch. But with writing, I mean, you can literally save as many drafts as you want of something and you can go back. Like when I, those first few pool scenes that I sketched out, they were just really rough and loose and I just left them in a drawer for years and I went back to them. Um, but it's nice to have, to see, you know, I mean, there's nothing like the moment when you get the, the idea for your next story or chapter and to be able to go back in time and just see what the seed, you know, of that story was, is great. And so what I guess what I like about writing is that you can save as many drafts as you want and you don't ever lose anything. And maybe that's also a problem as well, but. Um, well, when did, what was the seed of when the emperor was divine? Where did, how did you decide to take from that minimalist sensibility to this historical novel? Yeah, you know, that, story was a complete surprise. I mean, I was writing these humorous short stories in workshop. I wrote that, that, that chapter in my thesis workshop at Columbia in my second year. And um, I remember it was, it was winter break and I was, I don't know, I was just feeling a little gray in town. And um, I just had this vision of this Japanese woman on the street in Berkeley, just reading this sign. And um, so it came to me very much in pictures, that book. So, and I just almost felt like I was a camera just following her through her day to see what she would do after reading that sign. Um, so it, I think it was something that, you know, it probably been simmering in the, in the back of my brain for many, many years. Um, and, you know, I'm glad I didn't attempt to go directly at that material when I was younger. I think it's just difficult. It's just difficult material to write about um, World War II, the camps. Um, so, so that was really the seed. It was just a, it was a picture that appeared in my brain. Then you went on to write Buddha in the Attic, which so many writers that I know uh, talk about it as being, you know, one of their favorite books. When I when I speak to writers, they're always talking about the Buddha in the Attic as something which is just almost like a perfect. It's, you know, it's a perfect, spare, beautifully written, also historical uh, novel. The seed for that was when I was on book tour for Emperor, um, especially on the West Coast, I got to meet a lot of older Japanese Americans who've been in the camp. So I got to meet the people that I'd literally just been, you know, writing about for years. And they would tell me stories about their grandmother or their great, or their great aunt who came over to America as a picture bride. and. You know, I heard many different iterations of this story. You know, when, when she got off the boat, she was shocked to find that her husband was so short or so dark or so ugly or so poor. And um, so that was the idea for the Buddha in the attic. Um, but it, again, it, it took me a long time just to find the arc of that story. I remember after I finished Emperor, I spent about a year just what felt, I just felt like I was really flailing. I had these different ideas that I was sketching out and none of it seemed to be amounting to, to, to anything. And I, and then one day I, I just sat down and I all of a sudden rearranged things in a different order and I could suddenly see the arc of the new novel, but it, it took a lot of time to get there. Well, I'm sure you've heard this before that there was a, a wonderful um, 
a wonderful little comment by somebody who said, once per decade, we are graced with a book by Otsuka, the award-winning author of, of your two books. Um, and they talk about The Swimmer. And they said, if Otsuka doesn't write another novel for several years, it will be okay. <laughs> this is Thank one you. to be savored and reread. So you're okay by taking a long time getting those novels out. Oh, my agent saw that and she reminded me that I think the second part of that comment is if it if it's only a few years, not it not if it's another decade, but a few years. <laughs> Meaning, uh, I'm sure, <laughs> right? I'm sure that's what your agent and publisher would be focusing on for sure. Julie, what are you reading now? What kind of who do you who do you look to now when you're reading? Um, I love 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 Rachel Rachel Cusk. So um, I you know I during the second year of the pandemic I reread the Outline trilogy and. Um, uh, she just blows me away. Um, I love Katie Kitamura's Intimacies. Um, I like Deborah Levy. Um, I'm, I'm about to start Real Estate, um, the third piece of her Living Autobiography trilogy. Um, and what have I read recently? Um, oh, I read a really actually just a, a very, um, it's a very fun book. Um, by Jill Cement um, called The Body in Question. It's it's a jury duty story. It's completely fun. Just, I mean, I thought it was brilliant when I, I remember reading the description in the paper, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a romance set. You know, the backdrop is jury duty. I just thought that was brilliant. But uh, have you read that? I have not, but I but will now. It's completely sure. fun and it's beautifully written, you know, and it's, there's a yes. lot of pathos to it because the main character's husband is, dying and apparently Jill Simmons' husband is much older and he was dying as she was writing this novel so uh, there's a lot of pathos to the book too but it just I, I love so I kind of I love the whole setup I thought it was just brilliant could you ever see yourself writing a memoir in any way shape or form I don't know it might be a little too early it's just it's hard to write it's really hard to write about your own family I mean you know my, my father he died uh, in January of 2020 and you know I'm still processing that and I just might need a little bit more distance I don't know it's interesting that you say I mean I, in a way I feel like she she led a kind of a very ordinary suburban almost 1950s type of life you know that was the America that she really came of age in you know um, so she herself probably would not have considered her own story to be remarkable or out of the ordinary at all um, and it was so much harder to be a woman back then as well, I think. I mean, you know, I just sometimes wonder what she could have been if she were given the educational opportunities that, you know, that I had or that women, you know, nowadays have. Um, but she was really stuck in that mold of just being a good mother and a good wife. And she stayed at home and she raised the kids. Well, there's something that I find very interesting these days in the ordinary. Yeah, I mean, I think about, you know, growing up, I grew up in the 60s in Palo Alto and it was just a very different America back then. It was just much whiter than it is now. And, you know, I remember we were the first, you know, non-white family on the block. And, um, and yet, you know, my, my mother managed just to find a wonderful kind of world for, it was, it was almost idyllic just growing up on this block. And, you know, I was really raised with the kids next door, the Yoders, you know, and um, I remember one year, my parents wanted me to go to Japanese school. I wouldn't go unless Tommy Yoder could come with me. And he was just, <laughs> the one blonde curly haired boy at the Japanese school on Saturdays, you know, and we would just play 
But, um, you know, my mother and the, the woman next door, Jean Yoder, they, they just raised as kids as we were, it was just like one household. We would just go back and forth. And so, you know, my mother had a very positive, I think, experience of motherhood and, and of belonging um, that had nothing to do with race when she was a young parent, which I think was very good for her and for us, her children as well. But you know, that comes out of experiences in the years prior of just being feeling very, very, I think, self-conscious about the way she looked. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Um, I think we could go on and on and on, but I want to, I want to thank you for being on, on, on this, on this edition of the literary life. And for all of you out there who have not yet picked up your copy of the swimmers, you need to rush out to your independent bookstore and make sure you buy a whole bunch of them and give them out to everyone that you love. It's a, Really, really beautiful, beautiful book that will be talked about a whole lot. Um, Julie Otsuka, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It was a real pleasure to speak with you.